Welcome to the Neurosurgeon's Journey, part of the Library of Brain and Spine Group's Medical Student Neurosurgery Training Center and a collaboration with the AANS's Young Neurosurgeons Committee. I'm your co-host, Michael Quartz. I'm currently the Senior Student Director of Education Resources for MSNTC, and shortly we'll be joined by your other co-host, Dr. Jeremiah Johnson. He is an Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery at the Baylor College of Medicine and is the current Chair of the YNC. We're happy to have you with us as we look deeper into the rewarding life of a neurosurgeon and explore what it takes to get there. Welcome back to the Neurosurgeon's Journey podcast. Uh, Dr. Johnson, how are you today? Doing pretty good, Michael. How about you? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Quick update for our listeners. We are playing around with the frequency of how often we want to publish episodes. So bear with us as we become more consistent with that. Um, might be transitioning to a bi-weekly schedule, but uh, hopefully we'll have that uh, figured out soon. Now to the meat of the topic today. So we're discussing the MD-PhD pathway or pathways, research more generally, uh, and anything else that our guests would want to uh, discuss. We have two guests today. Uh, the first is Brandon Luckwald. He's a PGY3 neurosurgery resident at the University of Florida. He earned his MD-PhD and master's degree in clinical and translational science at West Virginia University. He has published over 100 articles and book chapters and will be starting his Enfolded Endovascular Fellowship next year. He is the co-founder of two biotechnology companies, Wrightwald Scientific and Chronic Traumatic Encephalopathy Cure. Brandon, how are you? Uh, I'm doing well. Thank you very much for uh, having me today. Absolutely. Thank you for coming on. Uh, our second guest is Divine Wafor. He's a sixth-year MD-PhD student at West Virginia University and is originally from Nigeria. He's currently finishing up his PhD in neuroscience this coming April and is in the process of transitioning back to his clinical years. Uh, Divine uh, is great. He is also has an interest in endovascular neurosurgery and is a social media team leader for MSNTC, which we are um, very grateful to have his, uh, his help uh, here at the TNJ podcast. So Divine, thanks for being on. Thank you. So per the, the standard, Dr. Johnson, we always love for you to set the scene. You know, we've discussed in previous episodes why research is in, uh, important in neurosurgery, but maybe just give a brief overview of the different ways to get that done, uh, and then why a discussion of the nuances of an MD-PhD pathway uh, might be important. Yeah, no, no problem. So, I mean, I'd be very interested to hear the other other guys' input on on this as well. Obviously, that's why they're here. But from my perspective, you know, there's one of the engines that pushes innovation in our field is research without question and, and really in our world. And there's a method of thinking that can be taught formally uh, through MD-PhD programs or it can be acquired through experiences with people who are, are trained in that. Um, and there's various ways to get that skill and MD-PhD is one of them. So uh, traditionally, MD-PhDs are a combined program in medical school that you can electively choose to go into when, when you uh, apply to medical school. And uh, it adds several years, uh, depending on your location and, and, and your mentors and your projects, et cetera, but several years and the guys can get into more specifics uh, about how that works um, to your medical school training. Uh, and then when you graduate, you have an MD and a PhD degree. There's a series of nuances as to whether that helps you or hinders you, et cetera, uh, for the neurosurgery match process, uh, as well as how that unfolds in your favor uh, as a neurosurgery resident looking for jobs, for example. And, and, and some of that just has to do with what you would like for your future career to be. 
Um, so it's a, it's a very valid pathway. Some of the real leaders in our field are MDA PhDs that do cutting edge research. Some of their leaders in our field do cutting edge research that do not have PhDs. So there's a variety of ways to go about it, but it is a really interesting topic. And these guys would be, would be very good resources to talk about some of the pluses and minuses and nuances of this. Great. Thanks. So you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, which I probably am. But there's three kind of rough ways to get a PhD uh, along with your medical degree. So I think what most people think of is, is the physician scientist training program or MSN, M- MSTP. I always forget what it's exactly called through the NIH. And that's where you complete your PhD, um, but in the middle of your medical training. So kind of like Divine is doing, he's finishing his PhD after his second year of medical school and then comes back, you know, four years or so later and, and then finishes out his medical school. Um, people can also, complete a PhD before they get to medical school, either because that was their primary focus uh, in neuroscience or, or something else or a different career, or people can get it potentially in, in residency and, and beyond. Is that fairly, is that fair to say, uh, Brandon, is that kind of the, the three buckets that people can get a PhD? Yes, that's uh, fair to say. I would say traditionally um, the more like uh MSTP type route where it's done in between is probably the most common, but there are definitely um, like neurosurgeons that have gotten PhDs prior to going to medical school. There are some options to get it uh, during residency. One of the um, MD PhDs that I worked with more in a private setting, he did his PhD during residency. Um, so those are the three routes. Um, but pretty much anybody that finds an interest uh, at some point has options available to them. That's great. Thanks. So let's, let's stay on you, Brana. I'd love to hear just your personal background, your story, why you settled on, on neurosurgery. And then, you know, as, as a, a second part to that question, just, you know, how that tied in with your decision to pursue and then complete the, uh, the PhD. Uh, so I, I actually decided on neurosurgery pretty uh, early on. Um, my uh, uncle had a spine surgery um, after a spinal cord injury when I was 12. Uh, it sparked my interest. Um, nobody in my family was in medicine uh, or had gone to college at that point. Um, so I knew that there would be a, a long road ahead of uh, me, but I had an early interest, started reading as much as I, I could. In selecting uh, universities to go to, um, I decided to uh, go to Baylor uh, University because of the strong uh, neuroscience, uh, which I saw the mug there. Um, and that's where I got exposed to my first uh, research uh, experience. Second um, bears. I'm just going to throw yep, that in there. Second bears. Um, but I had a great uh, mentor there. I uh, had no idea that MD-PhD programs uh, even existed, but got exposed uh, do, during my junior year of uh, college um, and started uh, looking into what it would take to get into programs. Um, I tried to be as, as strategic as possible uh, during my application process, really focusing on specific programs where I could train within a neurosurgery department, uh, knowing that that was my ultimate uh, goal. So that's ultimately what uh, led me to a WVU. Um, had a great mentor there, uh, trained underneath the uh, chairman, 
um, had a lot of exposure to operative experience to taking call with the residents. Um, so really knew what I was getting myself into in terms of uh, residency going forward. Um, but overall, I had a great uh, learning environment um, and it fit exactly what I was looking for. So how did that, how, how did you, did you know that you, because you applied to the scientist training program, the MSTP through uh, before, you know, as part of your medical school application, am, am I correct there? That is correct. So um, how did you decide that you wanted to, I mean, do, do the eight years instead of the four, what kind of led you, is it just your interest in neuroscience back in college that really kind of pushed you to that, to that decision? Or was there something else that factored in or? So there was a MSTP symposium uh, that was hosted uh, down at Baylor College of Medicine um, when I was entering my junior year of uh, college, um, really talked about the intricacies of what it entailed. There was a couple members of the neurosurgery team that came and talked um, that symposium. Uh, so it really sparked my interest. I, Like I said, I had no exposure prior to that. Um, and had been doing research, but um, not on a large scale. Uh, I knew I liked it. I wanted to incorporate that uh, into my training. Um, and so I started researching as much as I could, um, realizing that a lot of the, the leaders within neurosurgery were actually MD-PhD trained as well. Um, so they uh, really started uh, the process of getting more excited about it, trying to push the field uh, forward. And so I decided to apply pretty broadly. Um, so I think I applied to 17 programs overall, uh, had uh, 11 different interviews um, and it works a little bit different than normal, like medical school, um, like uh, applications, state lines don't really matter as much. Um, you are actually get multiple different offers at the same time. Uh, and then you're trying to pick and uh, choose at that point. So I did a lot of second looks. Um, and like I said, I chose to go to WVU um, because I could uh, train underneath the, the chairman of neurosurgery there who was also MD PhD trained himself. That there, yeah, there's a couple of couple things I'd love to expand on, but I'd love to hear divine compare and contrast his pathway a little bit. Um, so you ended up at West Virginia as well. Um, you've, and also, especially you being in the unique position of almost finishing your PhD and transitioning back to your medical school curriculum. Is, is there anything you want to compare, contrast, expand on from what Brandon had talked about? Yeah. So actually my path uh, to the MD PhD program was uh, very different from Brandon's. So my interest actually in neurosurgery itself actually uh, stemmed from, um, I remember taking a class in this, I think this was, this is called junior secondary. This was probably when I was 12, because uh, I'm originally from Nigeria. And so, you know, the, uh, my teacher actually came in, we had a really bad grade that day. It was, uh, uh, the averages were not looking so good. And so, you know, he was very disappointed in the class and he was talking about, you know, you guys need to do better. Um, you know, there's this brain surgeon in the U.S. that's Ben Carson, and he didn't really know anything at this age. Uh, and like, you know, he started going to the library and he was reading and now he's a brain surgeon. And now he's, you know, separating like 
conjoined twins and all this stuff. So I went up to my teacher after the class and I spoke with him and I was like, hey, so uh, um, you talked about this brain, his brain surgeon. So he's like, oh, no, you don't have to worry. You did pretty well on the test. I was like, oh, I'm just interested in the book. I just want to get the book. And so I started reading the books, the Think Big book, because uh, I always had an interest in medicine uh, from a Red Cross perspective and first aid and all. But it was not until I started reading those books, I could actually just imagine myself, you know, Dr. Carson doing the hemispherectomies and, you know, doing some of the surgeries I had read. So that was like sort of my passion for that. And then after having this passion, I decided to come to the U.S. Um, to get a formal education year. And then I did a two months rotation in uh, Cape Town, South Africa for neurosurgery. And that sort of even like engineered my passion for neurosurgery even more. And so when I actually applied to the MD PhD program, I actually applied as an MD only student. Um, I had done research back in undergrad. Um, I failed spectacularly at it. Uh, I worked with bots. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I did a lot of electrophys. Uh, most of my data was uh, uh, very difficult to, to get from them. So you can see I had a little bit of discouragement in research, but I still had the passion for medicine. Um, so in my, I recall my first year classes in medical school, uh, we would talk about, uh, you know, the different diseases, stroke, Alzheimer's disease and everything. And so as I would learn those, then I got more and more interested in research. So it was more so like medicine was a driving force for me to continue participating in research and realizing that, you know, they go hand in hand. Uh, so then I started looking up projects and, you know, looking at who I could talk to about research. And that's actually where I met Brandon. And uh, Brandon was one of my mentors that even got me more interested in it. Then I met my current PI, Candace Brown, um, you know, and she was doing fantastic stuff and all this, uh, the neurological diseases that I, I, I was very much interested in, especially was looking at a lot of vascular um, abnormalities. Um, so for me, um, I, you know, came in as this MD student and I did a lateral transfer after my first year, as opposed to Brandon that sort of started uh, right up from the bat uh, as an MD PhD student. Wow. So yeah, I guess you didn't have a very different uh, pathway there. So I'm glad we have both of you guys on. So Divine, maybe do you want to ex give us the, the elevator pitch for the, in, your research interests and, and what you're looking at right now, your thesis, that sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my interest is mostly looking at, I look at a broad range of diseases from sepsis to stroke to Alzheimer's disease. And, you know, when you look at the shared feature of uh, all these diseases is there's a dysfunction in the vasculature. Uh, and so one thing we we're trying to do is to look at a particular protein that is known as tissue nonspecific alkaline phosphatase. So this protein is localized in the blood brain barrier and, and a lot of historical studies have actually shown that, you know, the activity of this protein actually decreases um, uh, when you have those diseases, but we don't really know the function yet. Uh, so my uh, objective is to study the function of the protein of the blood brain barrier and some of the uh, results that we're sort of seeing uh, from my dissertation is that the protein actually, the protein actually uh, plays an important role in maintaining blood brain barrier integrity. Uh, so that's just a small summary of what I'm doing and what I'm about to finish. Yeah, I'm sure that doesn't do the last three and a half years justice, <laughs> but uh, I, I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Brandon, I'd also love to hear what you did uh, and what you're probably still doing. I mean, if you could if you we would probably be spending uh, two or three hours talking about the hundred research articles and, and book chapters, but 
I would love to hear what your primary research focus is now, uh, and where and where you see yourself. You know, especially in middle in the middle of residency and and beyond, where where you kind of see your career um, going going the next five to ten years. Um, so going in back on my dissertation work, um, I did uh, primarily looking at uh, repetitive uh, traumatic brain injury, looking at the molecular mechanisms that lead to more chronic neurodegeneration. Um, we found some pretty promising. Uh, the modulation of endoplasmic reticulum stress um, targeted pretty early in our rodent model um, and found some uh, beneficial behavioral outcomes. Um, what was interesting is we had um, human uh, brain tissue as well from uh, uh, patients that were po post-mortem diagnosed with chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Uh, we found that a lot of those molecular pathways were also increased uh, within those brain specimens. Uh, so had a pretty um, robust uh, clinical correlation. Uh, so that was the bulk of uh, my PhD work. Um, UF is a uh, um, pretty research driven as well. Um, the, the, we have a R25 program, which is a mechanism for continuing to fund um, residents during uh, research. So I have a pending uh, application. I should be hearing back uh, any day now, um, but it will be um, transitioning more into like endovascular, uh, looking at um, subarachnoid uh, hemorrhage uh, downstream pathways, similar um, techniques to what I used during my PhD, but it would be expanding under the mentorship of uh, Dr. Uh, Ho, who is the chairman uh, here at UF. Um, so that's uh, the next step. I'm hoping to uh, combine the research interest uh, with the enfolded uh, endovascular um, fellowship. Um, in terms of a five-year uh, trajectory, uh, looking to finish up um, the enfolded uh, endovascular fellowship, uh, my seventh year, um, our chief year is sixth year at UF, uh, and then we have some more elective time our seventh year. So um, my plan would be to complete that fellowship and then probably do an open uh, fellowship uh, after I am done with the uh, my training at UF, um, and then start looking for um, make an academic position uh, at that point. Right. Well, um, we'll shout out to Dr. Arthur uh, and his in our episode with him uh, a few weeks ago, talking about all things uh, vascular uh, neurosurgery. But I heard a couple common themes, Dr. Johnson, and def especially with their PhD work, a focus on translational and basic research. You're pretty research heavy at BCM. You didn't have a, you didn't get a PhD unless you got one in the last week or two that I didn't know about. I can um, tell you about that weekend course I took. Yeah. <laughs> um, so who in your mind doesn't probably need to get a PhD? Um, and, but someone who still is interested in, in in completing research, um, is it just clinical work that they might be wanting to do? Uh, is it? So there's a, yeah, no, I can kind of give a little bit of an overview of like what does non PhD research look like in neurosurgery, and, and as you may imagine, it's very diverse. So um, there's a number of things that someone can do that is not a PhD. Just because you don't have a PhD doesn't mean you can't do research that provides value and very legitimate results. Uh, you know. For the field. So some ways you can go is clinical research. And there's a variety of things that you can do. A lot of people that are busy clinicians do like retrospective 
um, research. Some people do meta-analyses. You can just go, go on and on about the different types of like clinical research you can do. Now there's more formal clinical research like being in randomized control trials. Um, as, a, as a busy clinician, you can have, you know, have the infrastructure in place, uh, the regulatory structure at your institution to enroll patients in control trials, which is you know, very rigorous, but certainly doable um, without a PhD. I realize I'm probably missing many of these, but I'm just going to give you an overview. So then there's also people that have, uh, that want to have their own lab, the clinician scientists, and many of those people actually don't have PhDs. Some do for sure. Um, the people that go that route often have pretty intensive scientific training in their middle years of residency um, so that they have a track record of uh, publications and um, expertise in some sort of science or innovation that they think that they can translate over into a, a lab. And what's important about that is that someone in academics usually has to give you money and time, uh, which is costly for a department to pursue these things. So you need to have some sort of track record for them to like lean on to give you those things because it's like, you know, if you're not operating, et cetera, or if, you know, another specialty, you're not seeing patients in clinic, you're, you know, not, not at maximizing that the revenue for the department, et cetera, that's what keeps everyone afloat, right? So pays everyone's salary. So, so one of the ways to kind of get that legitimacy is to have a PhD, uh, very advanced training um, that can get you then the projects and the expertise to, to, to convince someone when you're looking for jobs as Brandon will eventually, that not only do they know how to do clinical work, but they also know how to do advanced science training and, and to invest all these resources in them. And then there's also sort of like clinician investigators that are very heavy into device innovation. Um, they uh, look to create devices and patent them. There's certainly a small group of those. Those don't necessarily considered like hardcore research for the most part, but people do write papers on that work. And then, and then the other pathway, the other pathway is more related to um, kind of collaborative science. So having a skill that you bring where you can bring tissue from the lab to a, a scientist that either you work with or in collaboration or works for you. And then you can kind of provide the clinical access to, so for instance, brain tumors or electrophysiology from, you know, EEGs that you're doing intraoperatively, et cetera, and then collaborate with other scientists to have um, clinically meaningful research that is basic science uh, has a component of it. And so, and there's probably more I'm missing, but those are a lot of the different routes you can do research that aren't necessarily involved in doing a PhD, but certainly PhDs have a significant, I don't know, advantage, but they definitely have an increased expertise um, and kind of legitimacy when it comes to uh, doing that in their, in their practice. So maybe this is for another, another day, but talking about like the different because I know that different residents who are interested at, in research in different uh, different levels or, or uh, interest levels have they have to be thinking about these things pretty early, um, at least if they want to do something at, at an academic center, because they have to be able to show you know that you know whether it's uh, you know figuring out how to get a K award and like you know all these different NIH grants or NSF funding, all these different things that. Uh, when, when would someone who maybe doesn't have a PhD should be thinking about, and, and, you know, is trying to dabble in certain things, when should they really be thinking about when should I have my research focus? What do I want to do by the time I'm done with my residency training and fellowship training? 
um, and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think it'd be good, interesting to hear Brandon's take on this as well. So we're actually putting together a webinar on this. Uh, so I'll have more information for you once that's completely, uh, you know, matured. But what I would say is that you, the earlier, the better. Um, even at the point where you're a medical student and you may want to target particular kind of programs with strong, guard, you know, protected time during middle years of residency um, to, to, to spend in the lab. And if, and if you are in a program that has that capabilities, you need to lobby the leadership in your program and find mentors, the earlier, the better. I mean, that would be my over, overarching advice. Do you, how do you, what do you think, Brandon? So um, I agree earlier, uh, the better, um, but most uh, programs, the protected uh, time is uh, fourth or fifth year. Uh, so it does allow some time um, to start thinking of ideas during junior residency, which is um, pretty uh, busy um, from that standpoint. I just want to reiterate that uh, by no means is a PhD required to do very meaningful uh, research. The, uh, Brian Ho uh, has multiple R01 grants and uh, does not have a PhD or some of our leading like tumor experts, like doing that collaborative dynamics of having that expertise and then taking some of the specimens to the lab um, are also doing some very exciting science too. Uh, so there's multiple different avenues, uh, especially um, they threw out the training process for individuals that are interested in research and it can take so many different forms. Um, so I would say to continue to foster that during the entire like process. Um, a lot of the K award funding um, can be they built off of projects that were generated during that protected time during fourth or fifth year and then um, they normally during that seventh year time frame uh, is when start starting looking for that um, next step, whether that's fellowship or whether that's going straight into practice. Uh, that's a good time to start looking as well of how to incorporate research into a uh, career going forward. Um, so we have a couple of junior faculty members that uh, just joined on that are in that process right now. They are submitting K awards. Um, they have a pretty robust research background with several publications, um, but have developed a portfolio um, of productivity, but more important are surrounding themselves with appropriate mentorship. And I, I would say that's probably the most important thing is finding the appropriate mentors and having someone help that propel you forward throughout your career. That's probably the number one thing of being successful down the road. I would second that. Your mentors, uh, particularly as a surgeon who has their attention divided to a great degree, are extremely important for future success in research. And that's, yeah, the, those are all points that, so we actually have a Brain and Spine Report article written by several fabulous folks at a, at a host of different institutions. Common Kotlowitz, actually, at BCM is one of the authors, um, all MD, PhDs. And they talk about, the, they actually go very detailed at the actual M, M1 through PhD through residency pathway. So I, I encourage everyone to take a look at, at our website and the Brain Spine Report article there. Um, Jason Chong from UCSF and a couple others are, are on that article. Um, so you guys are iterating everything that they uh, discussed. For the people who are seriously considering this, uh, a PhD 
uh, MD, PhD specifically um, through the medical scientist training program. What are the maybe discrete advantages and disadvantages of going that pathway versus a traditional uh, just MD degree? I, I don't know, D Divine, if you want to start that, discuss that first and, and um, any discrete things you can really think about in terms of advantages and disadvantages. Yeah, uh, so I'll start off with the advantages first, uh, then talk about some disadvantages. So I guess for the MD PhD route, it sort of reminds me a little bit, um, uh, I mean, I've never been through neurosurgery training, but I've definitely heard a lot of uh, mentors in the field that have talked about it and how rigorous it is. And, you know, it's you, you train, train, train. I think uh, listening to, you know, one of the podcasts uh, you and Dr. Uh, Johnson actually had with uh, Siddiq Hawk, uh, the Muhammad Ali uh, quote. Uh, so it, it's uh, shut up. Yeah, <laughs> and I was just like, oh gosh, that that uh, podcast, whatever MDPs you student was listening to that day, and you know they're about to do their proposal defense. You probably give them a <laughs> a little bit of confidence yeah. uh, for their defense, <laughs> um, because when I sort of think of the uh, uh, the MD, PhD route, uh, particularly the, the PhD route, um, I, I think that, you know, when you come out from med school and, you know, you're this student that is a type A student, you work your butt off every single day, um, you do your lectures and you do the stuff. So you get more of a linear curve um, whereby, you know, the amount of work you put in equates to your success in med school. So the, the, the PhD route for me, I felt was a little bit different uh, it's a whole different uh, organism on its own uh, in the sense that no matter how much work you put in, will not always equate what you want out of it. And so it was more of a, I guess, like a, it's a sine wave curve. Some days are going to be good. Some days, most days are going to be bad. <laughs> um, uh, so in, for, those, in for that, those of you not watching us, he put his finger up and down. That's what a sine wave is. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, and uh, so when you have things that sort of go in that way, um, it's mostly builds you, builds a sort of resilience in you, um, whereby you sort of have to look at the way you sort of train as, uh, I think the best analogy I can go with this is like, you know, you could either be a giraffe or a jackal. You could be the jackal that is just like, oh, I gotta do something right now. Oh, everything feels, oh, I'm just going uh, crazy and stuff. Or you could be the giraffe in a sense that sticks his head out, out of the safari and watches and see, okay, what's the best path out of this for me? So that, I feel like that's one of the advantages you sort of get that if you're interested in neurosurgery, you sort of build this resilience from an earlier standpoint. Um, and uh, the other thing too is you sort of get used to the long training because um, you know, you're doing this for you know A2, ho ho however years your PhD takes you to you know, get, get done. Uh, so you sort of get used to that long training of being in the PhD program and the PhD program um, that you, you would get in neurosurgery, um, not making a comparison between the two, uh, but it's just the, the rigor that it takes to get to that point. And you sort of get, again, going back to resilience where it's like, you're not necessarily focused on a static finish line you understand that, you know, even though you and a set of people started uh, med school together, like at the end of the day, you all have like different finish lines uh, that's like different for everyone else. So it sort of builds up your mindset for that. 
And I guess like one minor thing that I would sort of add to the uh, MD-PhD too, like um, it's, which is very minor, but also important. Uh, you, it also alleviates the, uh, the financial burden you would have to worry about if you were later on in, uh, in, in residency. Um, a minor point is it should be the, re the defining factor to do an MD-PhD, uh, but it's something uh, that is also important. Brent, is there anything you'd like to, to add off, off of what David Attenborough said? He's talking about jackals and, and giraffes, but I don't know if you can add anything there. Um, uh, excellent points. Uh, I think um, the resiliency um, statement is important because um, that is definitely what's needed uh, for neurosurgery uh, training. Um, there, like the PhD time frame, there will be uh, good days and bad days uh, there too. So it's just constantly continuing to move along in, in the process. Um, PhD gives you a different thought process. It's a lot of independent thinking, um, really delving down into one topic and having asking uh, critical questions. So you're developing a true level of expertise uh, in that field. Um, and by the time you're done with that, for whatever that topic is, you should be an expert in that topic uh, after that PhD training. Um, there's a lot of transitions during the process. So it's rejoining medical school, starting uh, out being an intern again. Uh, so it's a lot of, you made it to one pinnacle, but you're instantly restarting the process. Um, but it's good for the overall training. I think it uh, helps keep you humble during the process, realizing that there is a lot to learn. There's a lot that we don't know already. Um, and as was mentioned, that resiliency is a critical determinant of uh, defining a good neurosurgeon uh, as they advance throughout their career. Dr. Johnson, we, we hear resilience and grit almost in every episode. I think we, I know you guys did that within a, a webinar, but we might need to, to do a podcast on that too. Yeah. Um, so Brandon, as a follow-up, what are, maybe what are some discrete disadvantages? You guys talked about, you know, the, obviously being able to think about things in different ways, um, think more independently, more as a scientist, um, more potentially data-driven. Um, what are, and, and then also some of the, the lifestyle advantages. Um, what are some of the disadvantages, whether it's career-related, research-related, anything? So one of the, there's a lot of transitions. Um, there's a lot of gaps in training too. Um, you make it through the first two years of medical school, have a pretty um, good clinical uh, knowledge base at that point going into third year. Um, it's a lot of catch-up that you have to um, initiated uh, during the clinical training portions, um, still playing catch up into early uh, part of residency too, uh, just because there's a large gap between when you had neuroanatomy compared to your uh, colleagues. Um, so that would probably be the main disadvantage, um, not uh, insurmountable by any means, um, but definitely a, a challenge at that point. I would say another um, thing that you have to consider is that a lot of uh, your friends will be 
already well advanced into their careers uh, in both sides of things. I, most of my friends from medical school are now uh, attendings and well into uh, their uh, clinical careers. Uh, same for um, the uh, colleague I did my PhD with. Uh, he's advanced through postdoc, uh, already has a faculty position as well. Um, so they are career-wise uh, a lot further ahead of where I am right now. Um, that being said, I would not uh, trade things. I um, am very happy with the decision, even though it's a very long journey. I, I think it ultimately it will provide a lot of um, satisfaction and opportunity to truly help patients. That's great. That's really great. So it sounds like you'd do it again, if you could do it again. Yes. And that's always a good indicator of, you know, uh, how happy you are in something. Divine, you were just talking it up. So I'd love to hear some disadvantages. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I talked a lot about the advantages and I totally forgot about that. No, it's okay. It's okay. That's good. Uh, that means you're, you're passionate. Yeah, yeah uh, I'm going to agree with Brandon on every single thing he actually just said. I think, um, you know, as someone that is transitioning back now, um, I am trying to, you know, uh, go back and study most of the preclinical year stuff and also then do some of the third and fourth year stuff. And uh, I feel like you sort of lose your... Um, not necessarily the the knowledge of what you learned from the first two years, but actually seeing patients again, especially if your program doesn't really have anything designed uh, for you guys to uh, uh, rotate with preceptors or anything like that. So, um, and, you know, just to sort of buttress in what uh, Brandon just said to, you know, you sort of see everyone progressing, but I think for me, like I've always just been like fine with that in general, because I've always just had the perception that I've never been on the same uh, path as everyone else. Um, they're going to progress into different specialties anyway. So um, I actually even see that as an advantage for me when I go back to the clinical years that I have people that started off with me, they can, uh, you know, perhaps point me into the right direction, you know, even going back into the third and fourth years, but also in clinic and what I'm not doing right. And I feel like there would be more likely to, uh, uh, assist me in, uh, in some of the things that maybe I'm going to apply to uh, residency and like point me towards the right direction. So I, I see that as a, as a, as a plus um, and not necessarily like a disadvantage for me because uh, I've just never, uh, I've always had this perception that we, we're all, we learn a different way. We learn different ways so we can't finish the same way too. And that's just my own perception of that. So if you're interested in neuroscience and neurosurgery in college, especially, it would probably behoove you to really focus your MD PhD applications on places that have a neurosurgery department. And not just because you would have the ability to find, you know, neurosurgeons in your, to be part of your thesis committee or as a PI or anything like that, but also because when you're on during that training, they could, you could still be a part of the neurosurgery department and still be getting some of that clinical exposure. Is that in theory, that sounds good. Is that real divine? I mean, do you, do you think that that's real or is that something that I'm, I'm totally saying out of naivety? Uh, I mean, like, I, I don't know what other organ is uh, more cooler than the brain. So <laughs> I yeah. think, okay. So like, that's always just been my, my own interest. I've always had a deep, fascination for you know the complexity of the brain uh yeah i, I definitely agree um with what you're saying um i think that 
you know, if you're interested in neurosurgery, um, me personally, I felt like uh, what better way to understand the brain than have a PhD in neuroscience, especially when we don't really know much about this organ. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I would definitely say that. And that's something I'm actually doing right now. So most of my uh, PhD work has been on like basic neuroscience and something I'm trying to do in my last semester is to start getting most of uh, the clinical neurosurgery uh, stuff done. And that's something I also want to do in my third year too. Um, to kind of sort of see, you know, like the whole point of having this PhD is to be um, uh, bench to bedside. I'm in the process of starting to see if I can maybe start at an early stage to integrate the two to see how, you know, maybe what I've learned, how can I apply those skills now that I've gained in my PhD to do clinical research. Uh, so that's mostly what I'm focusing on for my transition year. That's great. I can throw in a couple of quick uh, questions to the, to the crowd. So, um, so I've obviously graduated from residency. And so I've seen the fate of some of my friends who are PhDs. And one thing I would say is that they are clearly outclassed the rank and file resident, other residents that aren't PhD trained when it comes to research and science within residency. I mean, I think that they have a distinct advantage in that, in that realm for sure, as you would expect they would, but they for, most certainly do. Postgraduate, I want to ask the, the guys two questions. A handful of people I've seen that have PhDs actually go into practice and choose not to do science um, after all that training. And then I've heard the criticism. I haven't actually seen this in full force. The criticism or uh, caution, maybe is a better word, the caution that uh, by the time you've gone all the way through a long nursery residency and potentially a fellowship, the cutting edge science you may have done um, in in medical school is now you know old uh, techniques. And so if you have to make sure you have the ability to kind of keep up to date during your middle year research with your original research for that kind of to translate through to a potentially postgraduate, um, you know, career and in, in that subfield that you've studied your PhD in. I was just curious to hear you guys thoughts about one or both of those of those issues I've, I've, I've run across uh, talking to people. Um, so excellent points. Uh, I've had several colleagues that um, have faced that uh, dilemma as well. Um, I would definitely say the techniques will have def changed by the time um, of completion of residency. Uh, I think the benefit of doing a hands-on specialty like neurosurgery is that we are constantly learning on a daily basis. Um, our field's constantly changing too. So I think we are very capable of learning new skills and techniques. Um, so yes, it's a hurdle, but I don't think it's something that we can't handle. Um, I also um, like uh, wanna iterate the value of collaboration. Um, especially doing the large uh, clinical trials or uh, even pushing basic science uh, forward um, can't be done by an individual. It has to be done by a team. Um, and I've realized that over and over again, it's really science is more about teamwork, collaboration, really getting multiple talented people together from different disciplines and backgrounds and really trying to push things forward together. Um, so a big bulk of a lot of the research I'm doing now is through collaborations and incorporating 
that younger uh, trainees, so I'm very big into mentorship, um, multiple medical students, MD-PhD students that I'm mentoring as well, um, but also constantly seeking mentors. Um, I think throughout our training, we always need mentors, both from clinical and research standpoint. And uh, I think that is the key of becoming successful, like broaching those hurdles, trying to find the right team that can tackle uh, the more difficult questions and develop some new expertise um, along the way in terms of skill sets. And I want to I say I was just being a little bit of a devil's advocate. I've heard these things. I was just curious to hear your response to them. I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's doable. And, and there are obviously many successful people that are, are extremely you know, successful at transitioning their expertise through their training and into, into a lab post, postgraduate from residency. Um, I was just curious to hear what your thoughts were. So Dr. Johnson, I, I just, I really wanted to maybe take a step back. Uh, and so Brandon, you said you're mentoring some MD, PhD students. You, you find, you've recognized that that's important. I certainly understand it's important typically as a, as a mentee, being a mentee in that relationship. What are, you know, as, as me being generic medical student, maybe early resident, what are some research, what are a couple of things about research that you really wish neurosurgery trainees, neurosurgeons knew um, earlier in their training and, and maybe was a, a greater focus of medical school as well as organizations like YNC, MSNTC, AANS, CNS, some of these NREF, obviously, some of these places, some of these organizations that are in the business of um, providing resources and, and, and skills training and mentorship in, in research. Um, I don't know if, Brandon, if you want to tackle that first, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, so excellent question. Um, I Research involves a lot of writing, uh, and we really don't get that much exposure uh, during the process of our medical training. Um, there's formulating a paper, a scientific idea, and then taking it to publication format. Um, I think that's very valuable. Um, I try to mentor the medical students that I'm working with, have them be the initial first author on the paper, uh, really try to coach them and refine their writing skill, provide feedback in that regards. Um, on that same line, uh, grant writing is very much of a business pitch and we get very little business exposure during our medical training as well. Um, so it's learning more about marketing and how to take some a scientific idea and then sell it to a broader audience. Um, I, I think that is definitely a learned skill set um, that I'm still trying to figure out. Um, I think taking a lot of examples from the business world and having some more marketing expertise come in to really say, this is how you simplify concepts and really sell them to a broader audience is um, absolutely crucial because uh, ultimately that's, you can do the most exciting research in the world, but if you can't get it out to a broader audience, then it will have no clinical impact. That's great. Divine, did you have any other, I mean, you can agree with him. I certainly agree. I'm trying to learn some of just writing research. Um, there's there are a couple books like there's a book that I it's on writing well. I always forget the the author. Um, that's that's helped me. But I don't know if Divine, if you want to expand on what he said as well as maybe some resources that you've used to improve your research skills training and writing and these sorts of things. Yeah. Um, so uh, for me, uh, I guess 
my uh, my PI um, sort of, uh, you know, she got me early in the writing process. Literally, once I joined the MD-PhD program, the first thing I had to do was to do a literature review on the, on the topic area. So it sort of gets you to like really, really know about the niche you're about to sort of delve into. Uh, so the first thing you sort of want to do before you start writing anything is make sure you know what's already been done by that. So literature review is always a good idea. Um, and another thing is that she also like emphasizes, um, you know, going to meetings. So like, I remember like, I think two years ago, I probably went to like uh, 10 meetings in a year. And because, you know, what Brandon sort of said with the grant, um, you know, you can do your research, but if you can't talk about it or explain it to someone else, then, you know, you have, it's not that impactful. Um, so you have to be able to go out there and talk about what you're doing. And it's also important to network so you can get that collaborative skill where you meet people and you talk and then you can, you know, you can get phone numbers. You're like, oh, you, you got, you know, you guys use this particular cell line. Maybe I could use some of this. We've been trying to get this. And I've made some uh, good collaborations actually from going to uh, some of the uh, fishing sciences meetings, uh, uh, APSA being one of the more famous ones. Um, so those are some some avenues to uh, or resources that sort of uh, make you a better scientist. Um, and you know, for me, uh, I also think that uh, something you know Brandon sort of said earlier is recognizing that uh, research is a teamwork. It's not uh, an individual's success. And I, I think that could also be applied to to medicine too, because uh, and you know. Uh, one of the things that we sort of practice here at uh, WVU School of Medicine, and Brandon too can attest to this, is like we sort of, it's more of a, you, when we don't necessarily just like celebrate when an individual in the class succeeds, but we love to succeed as a team. And you can also see that in neurosurgery too, because like if one guy is just succeeding in your program, um, or one resident is succeeding in your program, then that's not a good program. It's like you guys want to pull yourself along together, and that's what makes a strong team. Um, so uh, reading a lot of books also um, also helps to expand your your skills with writing. Uh, but you know you can you can uh, love research, but if you can't write write it down to get your research funded, um, you're pretty much still at the same uh, ground zero because um, funding is an important part of research. Well, well, throw in there one additional thing, having. Um... Sorry, I hope you're. Oh yeah. yeah. Sorry, I thought you were done. Uh, I threw in there one additional thing, which is something Brandon brought up early, which is that like as you move through the process, you you are kind of an amalgamation of your research mentors. I think that you cannot you cannot uh, just de novo think all these skills up. You have to really rely on them and collaboration, even if it's not a direct research mentor, like is formalized in PhDs. Collaborative mentors that help you review your grants. Uh, you know provide a secondary skill set uh, like a bioengineering skill set when you have the clinical skill set etc is extremely important skill to have and i would say for people that are interested in research even if it's not formalized in a phd program um, identifying mentors and working under someone who is themselves very successful and skilled will help you learn those skills so divine my, my real last technical question is you know it was it was i guess now six years ago but what are <laughs> Where are some places that people, uh, you know, whether it's undergraduates or uh, people have wanted to make a, a career change, where can they find good information about how to become an MD PhD student? Yeah, so I would definitely, if your school has an MD PhD program or an MSTP program, you can start from there. 
um, you know, for me, where I sort of started from was with Brandon. Um, he was already in the MD-PhD program. He was pretty successful with being in the MD-PhD program. So I was like, okay, I, I, this is something that I'm interested in. So I found a mentor and someone that could sort of guide me through the process and, you know, sit with me and talk and discuss if this was truly what I wanted to do. Um, and, you know, some other institutions tend to have summer research programs. And that was also a useful um, opportunity for me to like sort of, you know, look at stuff that I've actually studied in med school and sort of apply it in a mouse model and see if I could, you know, see, see the disease itself in a different model. And so those sort of programs are important in uh, sort of getting you interested in research and truly figuring out if this is what you want to do. It's a six to eight week programs. Um, so it's not, you're not getting like a, an in-depth research opportunity, but it's very important because it could literally be the thing that lights, that hits the light bulb for you. Because uh, uh, that was my aha moment. And, you know, and like I mentioned from the introduction, like, uh, you know, after how much I really, really sucked at doing electrophys, you would think I would never do this <laughs> anymore. Um, but for me, I, I think that, um, you know, just seeing it, and I think I've gotten this question so much, um, uh, so would you, if you have to pick one or the other, and I think this was going back to Dr. Johnson's question on trying to manage both being an MD, PhD, and being a physician. Uh, if you have to pick one or the other, which one would you pick? And for me, I, I would, it starts again from that same question. What really led me to the PhD was medicine. So both of them are uh, connected. And I think one of the things that most um, med school students tend to think is that, you know, I just want to be a a doctor and uh, not really do the research part, but you have to understand from an earlier point that without research, there is no medicine and without medicine, there is no research. Uh, so we sort of have to get that from an early mind frame and that, you know, this are connected, but I can buttress the part again by saying that, you know, finding a mentor, someone that can guide you through the process, that is the most important research you can get. Um, uh, because if, if you still don't understand how to, you can't navigate this system or this terrain alone on your own, they're going to guide you towards meetings, towards networking with people, or they might even guide you in the right direction uh, for you to find a mentor that might be more suitable for you. Wow. Well, like with all the guests that we bring on here, I'm excited to make call you guys colleagues here soon uh, in residency. Um, Dr. Johnson, did you have anything that you would like to uh, conclude with uh, or other questions that we haven't uh, gotten into yet that we should have? No, I think we covered a lot of the high points. I I'm very curious to have if, you know, Brandon and Devine give us both their, their parting thoughts. Like maybe it, uh, maybe it would be a, a plea for people to do a PhD or, or the, who the PhD is, you know, fits best for, uh, you know, any kind of advice to help guide people when they're thinking about making that decision, PhD or just regular medicine route? I mean, what, what, what kind of two or three line advice would you have for someone making that choice? Like what, who should do it? Who shouldn't? So I think if you know for sure that uh, you want to go into neurosurgery, um, going into medical school, uh, I, I think it's a great uh, avenue. Um, it, I did my PhD in three years, so added a little bit of time, but not um, an extraordinary amount of time. Um, I think uh, the number one important thing that it provided was networking and mentorship, and more importantly, colleagues and friends that I will um, have the rest of my uh, career um, 
big reason why I ended up at the residency program that I did. Um, I did some like uh, a big project with the uh, chief resident that was uh, at UF um, at that time, and uh, we really developed a good connection. Uh, so I think, um, again, it all comes down to people. Um, I think the research is exciting. It's, neurosurgery is a field that pushes uh, things forward. I think it's one of the most, if not the um, at the like ultimate uh, level of uh, pushing uh, scientific discovery. Um, so I'm just excited for what the field has uh, to bring in the future um, and also to get to meet uh, some of the rising stars that are coming uh, up through the training regimen as well. I would divine anything, anything you think you can advice you can tell someone that's thinking, should I do PhD or just do uh, go straight to medical school if they're at that inflection point? Who, who, who should choose the PhD? Yeah, so for me, um, I think that uh, it's going to be a choice where you sort of have to look at like, um, not necessarily where you're at, but where you want to be. And not choosing one or the other is not necessarily a wrong or right uh, path. Because uh, the, the PhD for me was a decision that I felt that was important for me to start that early foundational uh, research aspect where I could start networking earlier on and also building the skills needed at an early uh, uh, stage in my career. But that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, if you start later on uh, in your career, you're not still going to be a fantastic physician scientist. So if you're looking for something, uh, and, you know, Brandon sort of mentioned, that, mentioned this, um, research and neurosurgery, probably one of the early specialties that I've seen that are very closely knit. Uh, you can probably do a survey of, you know, the applicants applying to neurosurgery, and I bet you, most of them, 90 something percent of them will have at least one publication. And that shows to show you, goes to show that close relationship. Um, so if it's something that you're particularly interested, if you're interested in learning, getting a strong foundation in grant writing and uh, very curious about basic science research at an earlier standpoint, uh, then the PhD is definitely, definitely for you. Um, if you're more so interested in the clinical aspect, there are other programs that you can do uh, clinical translational stuff that are two years or one year uh, post professional uh, post uh, sophomore fellowships that are also important important so that you could take. Um, but you know, if you like that one on one mentorship with someone that has is either in their early career phase or in their late career phase that can mentor you um, when you're um, in still just starting up as a student, then that's like uh, the PhD would be the route that's best for you. That's excellent. Thank you guys for answering that question. Thank you. Our guests have been Brandon Luckwald and Devon Wolfor. Brandon, thank you so much for coming on. Thank, thank you. you so much for having us. Yeah, this is coming up. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, follow, and leave a comment in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your audio content. Make sure to follow MSNTC and the YNC on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And check out our webpage at neurosurgerytraining.org slash TNJ, where you can find other episodes and links and resources related to today's conversation. Be sure to check out the YNC's webinar series and visit their webpage on AANS.org. If you have comments or ideas for episodes or would like to join us to talk about anything neurosurgery related, our email address is tnjpodcast at neurosurgerytraining.org. We'd love to hear from you. Finally, I'd like to thank Matt Rosenthal, one of our fantastic MSNTC volunteers, for helping with the editing and processing 
and also thank all the fabulous people involved in this project. Have a great day and we look forward to next time.